Hello lunchers. For the uninitiated, this is the podcast where I take fabulous famous guests for a slap-up meal and we record the positively sparkling conversation. My guest today has been performing his unique brand of wry political comedy for 35 years. He's now as much a journalist as he is, stand-up comedian, the scourge of arms dealers and quangos everywhere. He's made investigative documentaries for Channel 4's Dispatches, written five books and four play scripts and had six series of his own comedy show. As well as touring, he's also curated art exhibitions, written an opera and taken the police to court three times and counting it is the really quite gloriously stroppy mark thomas so i said i said you know this international women's orgasm day my mum's response was ah, that's why your sister hasn't been round <laughs> <laughs> i'm on frith street in london soho and i'm outside a restaurant called sussex which is one of the restaurants owned by the gladwin brothers their family has uh, a vineyard down in sussex they've got others called the shed um and nutbourne uh sussex does a really really interesting menu of sort of rustic luxury english food uh, i loved it when i reviewed it um mark thomas does not eat meat uh and this is a perfect place to come because oliver gladwin who's going to be cooking for us today does a lot of really good non-meat cookery. Let's go in. Hello. Mark Thomas as I live and I breathe. How are you? I'm oh, very good, comrade. How are you? Very good oh, to see you. You're looking very well. Thank you, so are you. This looks nice. Have a seat. Oh, mate. Let me introduce you, Mark. This is Oliver Gladwin. Hello, Oliver. What a delight to meet you. It's his gaff. So we'll have a look at the menu and come back to you shortly. Thank you. Thank you. How lovely. This is brilliant. Isn't it? So, Mark, in front of us, one of the uh, great items that they serve here is a savoury shoe bun with truffled mushrooms, a little bit of marmite. Are you a marmite lover or a hater? I like it. Good, okay. Topped with a little comfy egg yolk and one other thing which you might want to name. It looks like a corniche. Cornichon, gherkin. Yeah. These are very important in your life, aren't they? I love gherkins. I love gherkins. I'm a big gherkin fan. Is it not the case that sometimes when you come off stage after a gig, <laughs> pickles are your friend? Pickles are my friend because pickles are in the fridge, right? And that's when you get home after a gig. Because of because um, I'm diabetic, I have to kind of control a bit what I eat sure. you know, and at what time. And I'll try and eat a, sort of two hours before a gig so it's kind of kicking in for the gig and I can get through. Do you think uh, um, a small... Uh, I think I could get away with that. I think we should go for it. Okay. Because um, it is... Let me just... It's the moment when a little smile goes over someone's <laughs> face when they taste something and go, how does that work? Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> but you also... It is gorgeous, isn't it? So it's, it's, it's basically a little savoury eclair and truffled mushrooms. A little bit of marmite just at the end. Oh, that's lovely. Isn't it? I thought you'd like that. This is delicious. You've got your own allotment, haven't you? Or I you... have got a, a garden of salt. And you, you grow a lot of vegetables and you get quite yeah. excited. Do you pickle a lot of those as well? See, I'm just going to take you down um, the pickling line for a while. I love um, doing my own sauerkraut. I've so got... that's fermenting? Yeah, yeah. I've got a kiln, proper sauerkraut kiln. I should, where I live, I, I grew up in Clapham. One of our neighbours, because everyone was an uncle, right, you know, the, the way that people are uncles. The extended family, yeah, Uncle yeah, Jim, yeah. go and see Uncle Eric. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And what would happen was Uncle Charlie lived up the road and him and his sons ran a little pickle company in the East End. Me and my dad had to go and put the floor in once every sort of five years, six years, because the acids would just take out the concrete. Oh, it was proper amazing stuff. And he used to do it for the trade. So we would get these jars of pickles that used to be forever in the cellar. We had everything from proper mango chutney, fruit, you know, red cabbage, pickled eggs, gherkins. We just have a piccalilli, which I just, to this I day. I think it's fair to say pickles are part of your culture. Yeah, I think that... It, there's I, almost I, a joke in there about culture. But uh, anyway. it, don't, don't work it. No. But the, <laughs> but the point being is, it was like, that you just grow up with that. And so it's... And I find that... I still find a good pickled egg to be a thing of joy. Have you ever had the Manchester egg, which is a Scotch egg, but with a pickled egg in the middle, wrapped in black pudding, uh, deep fried... And then, or a black pudding boosted sausage meat, and then, well, now you're now, you're, you're now non-meat eater, but then it should be rolled in salt and vinegar crisps. Oh, bloody hell, that sounds amazing. Yeah. We'll have a look at the menu. I've drawn your attention to tempura marrow, and that's vegetable marrow. Lovely. With sweet chilli hot sauce. Oh, that looks amazing. This is, the, in front of us, we've got the shallot and rapeseed dip with the crudités and the caraway crackers. Um, there's roasted beef tomato stuffed with uh, burrata from Hackney. Oh, lovely. There we go. And then there's uh, also a pasta dish, aubergine caviar charcoal pasta with English truffle pecorino. How's all that sounding? Wow, that sounds amazing. Right, we have a plan. Oh, yes. What can I get for you? I would like the um, tempura marrow. Of course. And the roast beef tomato. Fantastic. Um, and I will start with the uh, scallops. Yes. And then have the place. Go oh, fish all the way. Should yeah, we get some salt baked Cornish potatoes on the side? I'm fine on potatoes, but if you've got the sort of some greeny stuff, yes, that would be great. Brilliant. No problem. You're on. Thank you so much. No. I have a, uh, a small starter um, to go with your little bites. This is a tapioca cracker with pea and a pickled giraffe. Want to know. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> this looks fabulous. Right. I'll there's many things to like about this. Yeah. And one of the sort of side issues to like about it is the fact that it looks like a pork scratching. Mm. Actually, it is a pork scratching. That's lovely, isn't it? There's a line on your website. Yeah. Right at the top. You are the oldest surviving alternative comedian. Did all the others die? <laughs> or did they stop being alternative? I think a mixture. When I started, because I, I was the first person in my family to go to university. Where'd you go? I went to Bretton Hall. Oh, right, up in Leeds? Yeah, up near Leeds. And yeah. I was, so my dad was absolutely delighted. The fact that it was a drama school, he was somewhat perplexed. He literally said, he didn't said it, but I think he is. <laughs> <laughs> Because, of course, it's a bit theatrical. Uh, if I'm getting my timings right, you should have gone there in 78, 79? I went there in... 81, 81. 81. Thatcher has been in power for two years. <clears throat> this may sound like a stupid question to ask Mark Thomas. Was that where you were politicised, or was it <clears throat> or was it a part of your upbringing? Because your dad was an old working-class Tory, wasn't yeah, he? Yeah, he was very much. The politicisation of anyone happens through a whole load of different things. We used to go to this Wesleyan church down in Clapham Junction called the Church of the Nazarene. 
and it was one of these white churches, do you know what I mean? So you'd go inside and everything was white. Full on happy inside. clappy. Yeah, yeah. You had to testify everything. Yeah. We, so my first gigs were there. I was four years old. They used to encourage us to get up in the pulpit and do poems and things like that so that we'd become proselytizers. There's one bloke who was a pastor who used to do magic tricks. So literally he'd come on and he'd have a box and he'd go, what's this here? So it's a blue handkerchief. I put it inside the box and I say the magic word, I let Jesus into my life as my Lord and Saviour and pull it out and it's a red hanky like the blood of Christ shed for your sins, right? So that was his thing and he did a trick where he got an empty chalice, covered it and tapped it and said, I now I let Jesus into my Lord, into my life as our Lord and Saviour, pulls off the thing and there's, it's full of money. And all the kids ran up to him and just went, wow, how'd you do the trick, how'd you do the trick? Here's in full blown recruitment mode and goes, all you need is faith in Jesus. And I said, do you need a special, no. All you need is faith in Jesus. I said, do I need a special wand? He said, no, all you need is faith in Jesus and your cup will overfloweth. Did it work? I went home, my dad's a builder, so I've got right a half Corona cigar tin and a bit of wood from the wood box. One hour, one hour I sat in the cellar, emerged an atheist. I had, it had a profound... You'd been had? Yeah, it had a profound effect on me. And, and, and when you talk about what made you political and questioning, I think all of us are questioning anyway. Sure. When you get had like that, it has a real profound effect on you. When you went to Brenton Hall, was it with the idea of being an actor or was it with the, the idea that this was a way into comedy? Because even by 81, look, we've got com the comic, um, comic strip. Yeah. I always said I wanted to be a comic from the age of 16 because I loved uh, Dave Allen, loved Woody Allen. These were my sort of comedy heroes. Les Dawson, who I just think is absolutely remarkable, one of the greatest comics we ever had. There's something beautiful about an autodidact who discovers... I love the story the... that he went to Paris for two years to write yeah. a great novel. And he played piano. Oh, he did play piano. He played piano in a brothel in Paris. And you just think, that's the bloke standing before the Queen. <laughs> oh, oh, hello. Oh, my. This is your tempura, Mara. Thank you so much. And my scallops. Oh, man, this looks amazing. Thank you. Thank Cheers. you very much. Oh, they look beautiful, little lacy curves oh. under sweet chilli sauce. I have to say, this is absolutely... And I've got some big fat scallops under a sort of salsa with pine nuts. And little mm. pickled onions, if you want a pickled onion, mate. That's delicious. Was there a particular point when you concluded that there was both comedy, but also, what's the word, purpose in taking on the, the issues of the day, talking about the stuff that mattered to you? Well, I always thought Dave Allen was the greatest social comedian. He was amazing. You wrote for him for a while, didn't uh, you? Very badly, very or, badly. Or, or sat in the same room while he wrote his own jokes. What, I mean, what, he, was just, he was just a genius. He was just a genius. You go in there and, go, and we'd be doing a Christmas show. He goes, I want ideas, I want ideas, so give me ideas. And he said, snow, snow. Somebody sent me a bit of it. Snow, why, why, why do people like snow? It's dreadful stuff. It covers up piss, there's dog shit underneath it. What do they like snow for? Hey, old people fall on it, they die, it kills people. Actually, people die. Why the fuck are they sending cards celebrating snow? And he was just off and away. <laughs> and it was just, just like this, I'd love just being in the room. Do you know what I mean? 
it occurs to me, and I have to say this, that there are people listening to this who have no idea who Dave Allen is. Hmm. And I feel desperately the need to say, if you don't, please go to your internet video provider and have a bloody look. Mm. Oh, Oliver's bringing something else. But you know how the, it's been raining? Well, yep. I've lived near the woods, and this is a beefsteak mushroom. And I've sliced it very thinly, and I've charred it with butter. And I'm serving it with this sort of barbecue-y uh, butter of sauce. I think we're very happy. That looks fantastic. Yeah. That looks amazing. And it really re resembles beef. Uh, it does. We're going in. Enjoy. Thank you so much. Oh, wow. Bloody hell. These are really thin slices of very meaty mushroom that really have been char-grilled, so with a couple of purees. So you're waiting with Dave Allen? Mmm. But my, that was the first time... But Dave Allen and Barry Cryer were the times my dad regarded me as having a proper job. I always thought the most subversive thing about Dave Allen was he was sort of prime time, after 9 o'clock mm. on BBC One, mm. but still basically mainstream but delivering some really subversive stuff that wasn't quite I noticed. always remember he was recording for LWT. I don't know whether you know that he did this gag where he'd just walk on stage and he said, it's, it's, so he's in front of a London audience. And he says, I, um, I tell Irish jokes, and I get into a lot of trouble for telling Irish jokes, but, you know, you've got to be able to laugh at yourself, don't you agree, audience clap? If you can't laugh at yourself, what's the point, audience clap? You've got to be able, I'll tell Irish jokes, I won't have these people tell me what to do. I'll tell bloody Irish jokes. The audience cheer, he goes, two paddies, leave, leave Dublin, go to work in London, the IQ of Dublin halves overnight. Big laugh, big round. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself, big round of applause. They get to London, the IQ doubles. Silence. <laughs> and he looks at them and just goes... Now, I thought we'd agreed. <laughs> perfect. To catch someone's bigotry like that. Perfect. Well, I'm going to leap ahead, because in, in 96, the, um, the Mark Thomas comedy product mm. starts on Channel 4. It was very content-heavy. I mean, I, I, watching it, and I watched a number of episodes. I'd watched them at the time as well, but I watched it again, thinking, geez, this is a lot of work. You're on the first series... There's a lovely interview with David Amos. When we, we asked all these Tories just to come along and be interviewed for a youth programme. He tried and to get Jerry yes. Hayes to put on a penis costume. Yeah. He said, could you imagine the Daily Mirror, the mm. Sun, the Mail, what they would do with me? I mean, it's, it's the mere fact that he's even tried to explain to you why, when it's completely obvious. No, why. but he was, he was also going, I'd love to do it, and ordinarily I would do it, but could you imagine? <laughs> and it was kind of like, we went from that... To then going undercover at arms fairs. To my mind, watching your output, because you also did episodes of Dispatches, you did a lot mm. of stuff around uh, what well, arms dealing has been one of your great things. I love the fact you set up a PR company. Yeah. And then managed to get lots of, you know, international dictators and army bosses from repressive regimes to admit to all the things they needed to greenwash. By a and you got it all on tape. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I was actually offered... Um, because we, what we did was we get we do fake media training with people. Um, so the Indonesian Major General, Major General Wijoyo, admitted to the use of torture and stuff like that. There's a very famous story, which was that you discovered that one of the people in the campaign was actually a spy for BAE yeah, Systems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. BAE Systems admitted it in a court of law. Didn't it happen because they realised they'd got hold of your entire defence? Well, we were bringing a court case against the Serious Fraud Office for um, cancelling the investigation of bribery between Saudi Arabia and BA Systems. 
and um, it was officially cancelled by Tony Blair. Over the massive uh, arms deal, what was it called? Yeah, Al, the, Al Your Mama. Al Your Mama. Uh, and, Thatchers. Uh, yeah, it was just billions, which we won. We won the first one. They said that they shouldn't have stopped investigating the case. There was a case to answer. And actually, what you had to fear was a, 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 a prime minister intervening on a legal process. Um, we lost on appeal. Did you yeah. get paranoid? Did you find it scary? Did um, did your family tell you this has gone too the far because only mine did? The, yeah. I mean, there were a couple of moments. I had my phone disconnected and graffiti on the house and my name appeared on a far-right website and all sorts of stuff like that. Did I worry about it? It was in my mind. I there, there were moments when I did, but, I mean, to be honest... The funniest thing is a few weeks ago, doing a gig and a bloke came up to me and said, do you remember that you did a programme outside Aldermaston Atomic Weapons Establishment? I said, yeah. He said, you appeared on a cherry picker in the field opposite because the farmer hated them. Yeah. He said, do you remember when you were doing that, that there was a little red dot that appeared on your body? And, and I said, yes, I do remember that. I remember it very clearly because the cameraman just went, you've got a red dot on you. I was like, fucking hell. And this thing, <laughs> and you do sort of go, oh, bloody hell. He goes, it was me. I was on duty and I couldn't believe it was you. It was only afterwards that I suddenly thought, oh, bloody hell, he's probably shat himself. <laughs> I'm considered a uh, dangerous domestic extremist. Oh, congratulations! I know it's, it's, we had tea towels really made of them. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. How did you discover that you were? It's because Dear what Mr. happens Thomas, when they go, I'm delighted to yeah, tell you that you. It is with great honour that I write to you. <laughs> it was because they get have these things called spotter cards, and police spotter cards are where they have photographs of activists, and they give you a letter. So I was, I was suspect H. How did you get a hold of one of the cards? A cop dropped it at, um, at an anti-arms fair thing. Someone grabbed it and photographed it and just sent it over and just said, you're on this. I actually have a photograph of it framed on my wall. I'm a member of the NUJ and... Um, so am I. And I, 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 I've, I, you know, we've got a court case being brought. There's seven of us NUJ members who are on the National Domestic Extremist Database. I've, I've had the privilege, Mark, of watching you close up. Mm. I remember one particular routine you did. Routine. It doesn't seem fair. You told a story, and I think it was about your old dad, mm -hmm. no longer with us. And it's a very gentle and, I'm going to say, slightly sentimental story. And your voice gets quieter and quieter. The audience is leaning in until you come to the punchline, which is your dad's swearing like a trooper out the window. My mum was a midwife in Glasgow, right? She was militantly pro-choice. And my dad, who's this larger-than-life character, he was a street brawler, but he was militantly pro-choice. And so you're driving past... It was, I might have been Streatham Hill, somewhere there's Mary Stokes around that yeah, way. Yeah. And we were driving past and they had some protesters who were, you know, anti-choice, anti-women protesters. And um, 
My dad just unwinds the window. This is how long ago, because I'm miming. Or, or, yeah, he's unwinding or, the window. <laughs> he would lean out the window, just go, you like you fucking wankers, what the fuck are you doing intimidating fucking women? You fucking evil fucking bastards, you bullies. You fucking read your Bible, Corinthians 13. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like this. He, and, and it was one of my favourite ever heckles, I think. He was a force of nature. Who loved his opera. He, he did love his opera. He absolutely adored opera. He sort of discovered opera when... He, I'm sorry, I'm going in with my fingers. Look, do, do, do. You get no objections from me. Uh, he absolutely loved opera and discovered it by accident. He was a big believer in self-improvement. And so he would get these weekly... It was a record set. A record came out every week and it had a cover, an explanation, all of that. It was a 78, and it started at Bark and went all the way through alphabetically. This is something he's given you, isn't it? Yeah. Because you've actually ended up working with the Royal Opera House. Mm. We were there for two nights. After the second night... No, we were there for one night. After, the first, after that night, the liaison came up to me and said, all the technicians are in tears. You've done really well. <laughs> so what was the piece that you'd done? It was about my dad. It was about oh, his love of opera and about how he... Um, he had an illness called um, progressive supranuclear palsy, which is terminal, and it means that it's your muscles worse. collapse, you collapse. There's bits of dementia, and, and it's like we lost him before... You lose him before he went. They asked me to do something for the Royal Opera House, and I agreed to do it on the basis that they lent me opera singers. And at the time, my dad was living in a bungalow in Bournemouth, and we took the opera singers down and put on an opera in his living room, which was a hoot. Just lovely. It was about seeing a bloke who was very violent, didn't know how to express himself. And I think what he loved about opera was it had all these emotions, that just these surging great emotions that would charge around the place that he had in him but couldn't give voice to. You completely connect him. And for a short while, he was, he was like his old self came back. You very recently, you'll, you'll date it for me, gave a speech after. Did you pick up an honorary doctorate? I did. Where was that? It was at Canterbury. Right, so you pick up an honorary doctorate at Canterbury. I was at Canterbury Cathedral. And you deliver a speech, as is uh, the right of someone who's just picked up a doctorate. Like yeah, they invited yeah, you to. Yeah. And there's a bit on YouTube of you just going hammer and tongs at Boris Johnson. Yeah. Did you get any kickback from the authorities in the cathedral or the university who'd just given you the doctorate? No. Mate, I was doing it sort of ten yards away from where Beckett was murdered. No. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to have a go at me over that. But what was amazing was because I said this stuff about Johnson and suddenly the, the, the students went with it and they rose and they started clapping and applauding. What does that sound like from your past? It does say it's weird being in front. It's, it's kind of like part of me. It's a revivalist it is, prayer it meeting, is, isn't it? Is, it? But it just is, from a different direction. But that's that, yeah. You're absolutely right. My sister's a vicar, right? And she always goes, "You've narrowly missed the family profession." Because my great grand granddad was a preacher as well. So not by much. I know. I know. <laughs> I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. Is there in in what you do your stand up and also a lot of it actually is just straight journalism? A, an element of testifying on behalf yeah. of those who can't. Yeah, yeah, in a way there is. 
In a way, there is. In a way, it's also a celebration at the same time. You want to have fun. You want to muck about. You want to cause. You want to be rude. You want to be riotous. So, when, when did you work out? Was it during the Channel Four series that you really could do stuff that was? Pure activism or pure journalism? I'll tell you when I did work out. Mm. I did a gig for Kensington and Chelsea Borough Council, completely misbooked. I was the opening night on their open-air theatre. It ended very badly. And the bloke who organised... What was your material roughly at the time? Uh, well, it was, it was mainly sort of sex and anti-Tory, so oh, okay. it was just, just everything that they... Filth and class war. Yeah, but the bloke who organised it wrote a letter to my agent going, I do not wish to act as a censor but feel we cannot have any other acts like Mark Thomas appearing on the bill. Next day I arrived, because of Mark Thomas, I felt compelled to technically offer my resignation to the council. They have unfortunately accepted. <laughs> so your routine claimed the scalp of a Tory councillor? Yeah. Three years in. Did that feel like power? Yeah, that felt gorgeous. The worst thing I think about about poverty is, is the way that it strips people of power. It strips mm. people of agency over their lives and their existence and the fact that they feel that they can change something. And, and it narrows everyone's horizons. It just lowers what you, you think you can get. And so, in a way, the show, the telly show, became this thing of going, well, here I am running around with a camera. And we did get changed. I mean, we changed the law, we changed companies. You know, I had the chief executive of Nestle, you know, faxing me the new designs of tins that we had caught, you know, shown all the wrongdoing. Yes, your dinner's arrived. <laughs> this is your uh, East State tomato with Ooh, oozing with burrata. Thank you. Can I just say, those mushrooms were just absolutely flabbergastingly brilliant. Thank you. Um, this is your place, sir, with lots of anchovies. And this. Um, Butter sauce. Thank you. Just, I'll just soften up the uh, arteries. <laughs> They'll be fine. This looks amazing. And then we've we've got some some beetroot, pickled onions. Beetroot pickled onions. Beetroot pickled onions. With black cabbage oh. or Dublin Nero. And then um, quoted the world's best potatoes. Oh, was it? Uh, who was that? I think it was you. Was it me? Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <right>. okay. <laughs> well, I'm a man of brilliant taste, so we'll, let's just take my word for it, shall we? Yeah. Two things. Yeah. One, you seem to lack shame. As in, <laughs> your ability to chase someone into, I don't know, a hotel or even into a, the bog somewhere yeah, to ask happened. them questions, to keep the mic going, to mm. just get in their faces. Where does that come from? Are you challenging yourself or are you just slightly unhouse trained? Do you lack certain of the, the I, filters that other people can have? Can I just say unhouse trained? Yeah, you can say that. <laughs> I think I, I, I've grown up in a family without filters. My dad, did, we, we didn't have a door on the toilet until I was about 10. <laughs> so in the morning, you'd go downstairs and you'd wave to dad as he sat on the bog with the paper. <laughs> All right, son. It was. It literally was. I tell this joke about my mum, about living with my mum. But it's true. She was discussing how everyone has a day. So there's National Cheese Day and there's Day for the Panda and all of these. I remember the day because it was the 8th of August and I said, I don't know if you know this, but 8th of August is International Women's Orgasm Day, which it is. Is it? So I said, I said you know, it's International Women's Orgasm Day. And my mum's response was, ah, that's why your sister hasn't been round. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right, so no boundaries. No boundaries. But also righteous anger. There's a moment when you're doing an investigation or something where intellectually you've gone, no, I need to do this, this is good, that's important, this needs to be done for this and this. But there's a moment when you cross an emotional line to make an emotional commitment to the story. Yes. They, it can come at the strangest times. I wonder whether you make that, cross that boundary earlier than some. Maybe. Because but I think that emotional work. commitment is really important because it keeps you going, it keeps you sort of dogged. I believe you're 60 next mm-hmm. year. Are you still hopeful? Yeah. I think with the bus pass always comes optimism. <laughs> yeah, I am. I'm always optimistic. I mean, I don't know whether... I remember when I was in the West Bank, we were doing all sorts of projects out there, and I'd come back and people would go, but is there optimism? Where's the optimism? Where's the optimism? And I said, well, there isn't much, but there's, there's no shortage of resistance. And I think those are two very important things to differentiate between optimism... Some, some groups on the left are continually saying, you know, we're just a step away from the revolution. We're just a step away. Mm. And I just feel it burns people out. It's just like, don't offer false hope. Just be accurate. Um, am I optimistic? Yeah. There's always signs of things happening that are really interesting. Um, there's also horrible things, like the rise of the right mm. in Scandawija, you know, is is incredible and incredibly worrying and, and, and in Italy too I mean, those, those are really properly worrying things but actually I, I find that the support for trade unions the support to actually get you know working class people a proper wage to be able to live is incredible. The mood on picket lines is really exciting. The, the support of those are really exciting. There is a, a, a feeling that you can, we can take things on and win. You're about to go out on tour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to talk about this bit, don't we? We do, but I actually, what I'm, <laughs> what I'm curious about is, when you're, uh, uh, how many tours has Mark Thomas done? Oh, loads. Quite a few. Mm. Have you, this may sound like a very naive question, but I, I, I find myself wondering, have you written a set? Or uh, is there so much going on, you're going to go on, pick up the mic and Mate, start talking? I don't think I'm going to be short of material. <laughs> Do you start running through things in your head? Do you have an opening line? I had lovely stuff up in, uh, up in Scotland when I was doing the Edinburgh Festival. You know Jordan Peele, who directed Nope and um, Get Out and Us? I do know Jordan Right. Mm. And Get Out being a film in which young black men are kidnapped by ancient elderly white men who are very rich and they transfer the elderly rich white man's brain into the young lithe body of the young black man. And there's a scene where one of them gains control of the body and just shouts at at Daniel Kaluja's character and just goes, get out, 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 get out. I said, and that is what it's like being a comic from England coming up to Scotland. (laughs) And it was kind of like, and that's how you start the set every... You know, that was just kind of, you start there, you get a big old laugh, we're off, but you acknowledge where you are, who you are, what's going on, and then we can run. Is yeah, it still no. the thing that reminds you who you are? 
in many ways it is because I feel freest on stage. I feel most me on stage. I feel happiest on stage. I feel that I can say anything and people will either forgive me or they'll forgive me on the next tour. I adore those places where you can say what you want. It's where I feel at home. I feel most me there. So if anybody wants to see you being most you, yeah. they should buy tickets for your tour. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the <laughs> great thing is, the great thing is you get to every show you can improvise, every show you can muck about, every show you get to write new lines and put new material in, and, it's, and you can do whatever you like. Do you pay attention to the media as you're on tour? Yeah. You wake up to the Today programme... Pick up the Daily Mail to see what oh, I can't. I can't be bothered with the Today programme. I can't. It just... Oh. i tell you what I find very good is Fela Kute first thing in the morning. That's what you... There's a great album. Do, do you know Fela Kute? I know, I know him a bit. There's a wonderful album of, of which you did with... Um, which you recorded live with the Africa 70s. And so you've got Tony Allen, who's drumming, with Ginger Baker live. Fantastic. And that gets you up in the morning. Oh, mate, what the, if that doesn't, I'm dead. <laughs> well, listen, um, good luck with the tour. Thank you. Sorry, uh, I've got a mouthful of food now. Yep, that's fine. There is dessert for us to look, look at, if you would like. But Not for, for now. Me, but this is gorgeous. But for now, I'm going to say, Mark Thomas, thank you very much for letting me take you out to lunch. Do you know, this has been thoroughly delightful. I love this place. Good, because the chef's standing oh, really? right there. <laughs> <laughs> What a thoroughly lovely way to spend a lunch and a huge thank you again to Sussex in London, Soho and its head chef Oliver Gladwin for cooking it for us. Uh, Mark's latest tour is entitled Black and White. For tour dates, go to markthomasinfo.co.uk forward slash tour hyphen dates or just Google Mark Thomas. You'll find your way to it. If you love the show, do please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share this with everyone, friends, family, enemies, people you met in the pub, you know the deal. Um, and also, do comment. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts if you can. It helps us to make more of them. Out to Lunch is a Something Else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner, and Robert Rickenberg. The recording engineer was Paul Brogdon and the mix engineer, Josh Gibbs. Assistant producers are Anya Das and Bethany Hawkins. Selena Ream is the producer and the executive producer is Ollie Wilson. Next time, it's actor, writer, musician and the comedian known as the pub landlord. It's Al Murray. I don't, don't want to play Hamlet or any of that comedian stuff. Don't think it's going to happen, Meg, but... No, it's, no, no, it's well, no. far too late for that. Well, they didn't Ian McKellen playing recently. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a... Yeah, but he had quite a good form. 